everybody, it's He Yang. Roundtable is thrilled to launch the UniTalk Challenge, Rising Stars of Roundtable. If you like the show and enjoy our discussions, why not take the stage yourself? Calling all university students, both undergraduates and postgrads, to engage in an English discussion on a topic that ignites your passion. Record your discussion, which consists more than one person, and send it to us at ezfmroundtable at foxmail.com. You could be the next rising star of Roundtable. An incredible opportunity awaits, so seize the moment. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, welcome to Roundtable, where we serve up piping hot debates on the issues that sizzle in China and beyond. I'm Yeo Honglin, sitting in for He Yang. Over the last 10 years, the Belt and Road Initiative has grown from a visionary concept to a global trend for connectivity and development. It's a journey that has transformed lives, economies, and the way nations collaborate. So for today, we have prepared a special program, Belt and Road Initiative in the Eyes of the Youth. We'll hear from some young voices about the remarkable changes they've witnessed in the dynamic era. Let's embark on a journey through the past decade, the present, and the future, exploring the impact and potential of the BRI through the eyes of our young participants. Joining today's discussion, we have Zun Ahmad Khan, Research Fellow with Center for China and Globalization. Hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Likewise, it's a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> and also we've got Huang Ziyuan, CGTN Opinion Editor. Hello, thank you for having me too. And we have someone from online. We have Georgia Masset, Policy Officer in European and International Organizations. Hello, Georgia. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. We can catch this show on all of the CGTN radio platforms, including our official website, international social media platforms, including Facebook, YouTube, X, the previous Twitter. And also you can find us on our domestic platforms, including Sina Weibo and WeChat video channels. Now it's time to grab your virtual compass and follow us to the heart of the discussion. First things first, what do you guys think of when you hear Belt and Road Initiative? Should it be one word? It can be one word, can be a sentence, or even a little story if you have one. Okay, I would say, if I had to make it precise, I think the first word mm -hmm. that comes to my mind is connectivity. Mm. Obviously, and connectivity is maybe tangible, but also people um, creating new linkages. I actually really like the answer because we also mm. published that question to oh. online, mm. to a lot of netizens, and connectivity is definitely the word that pops up mm. on uh, a lot of the comments. And what about you, Jian? Uh, I think for me, the word should be geopolitics, but there's a oh. story behind it. <laughs> um, I'm not stopping there. Uh, so when I first heard about it, I think I was in college or very early, and it was just after it was announced of course, back then, it wasn't called Belt and Road. It was just a road at, at the very beginning mm -hmm. of it. So my professor, we were in an international relations class, and my professor sort of just mentioned it offhand. She, he was talking about geopolitics, then something, something. Oh, then China had this, just announced this um, huge, ambitious project. So that's sort of my intro into the Belt and Road Initiative. It was about geopolitics. But now, you know, a decade later, when we look at it retrospectively, it's sort of not 
all about geopolitics. There's a lot of other things involved in it. Like Zoom said, it's about connectivity, and there's economic development,、mm. and then you have the、uh, there's an environmental aspect to it. There's a health aspect to it.、Mm. I think growing, we have AI aspect to it.、Mm. So it keeps evolving. It's、mm. so it's not we cannot. It's hard to define it in one word. And、yes. geopolitics is definitely not the word to define <laughs> it. Yeah, I'd like to add a bit to that because、um, when I first read about. The Belt and Road Initiative. It was called the One Belt One Road,、mm. and this was in 2013. And that's a time I was a researcher in international relations, regional politics, geopolitics was my passion. But what I thought the first time when I heard about it and I read the speech, it was in Kazakhstan that this was announced, was that it is really responding to a growing need for many developing countries, including my own Pakistan. And the sentiment with which it was announced was also as if you know there is a there is a recognition, a realization that countries that have、um, a desire to improve their infrastructure、uh, and the traditional institutions haven't been able to now China can come in and you know really fill that gap. So I, the first thing that came to my mind was problem solving, and in a way, what you also mentioned, it's been、um, evolving because it's responding to different emerging challenges, problems, and gaps.、Mm-hmm. So that's a very yeah. I think we that's a really good、that. answer. What about you, Georgia? Well, for me,、uh, when I think about the Belt and Road Initiative, it's actually more than a word. I always think about how it truly is the project of the century, and I'm quoting President Xi Jinping in 2017 here. Um, news coverage, media coverage, always describe the Belt and Road Initiative as the project of the century, and this massive, not only infrastructure、uh, project, which is at the moment the most expensive project in history. So I think that this、uh, helping countries ex- escaping from extreme poverty,、uh, helping political stability, can only be described as the project of the century. Mm. Actually, we've got some very interesting response from online. We have someone saying connectivity comes into my mind, development comes into my mind, knowing the Chinese more comes into my mind, and knowing the world comes to into my mind. I think is a really good answer.、Mm-hmm. And also, we've got people saying the world is in harmony. People with a realization of understanding in true civilizations by having a peaceful and friendly free trading in the sense that no discrimination of nationality or sensationing. I really like as. Well, and also someone saying connections. I think it's a really cool idea, a modern take on an ancient thing. So definitely, because we know the Belt and Road Initiative actually represents sixty-five、uh, percent of the population, forty percent of the GDP. So that is really, like Georgia has said, a huge project, and actually it's a huge initiative. But of course, we know in the past decade, more than one hundred and fifty countries and over thirty international organizations have joined the Belt and Road. Initiative in different forms, and also it has established more than three thousand cooperation projects and nearly one trillion U.S. dollars investment. Even with all that being said, still there are people who don't necessarily understand the Belt and Road Initiative quite so much. They have misconceptions about it. They have some outdated understanding about it. And have have you come across any? I think、um, one of the first、uh, because I've been researching. Um, Chinese foreign policy BRI, so we would definitely, you know,、um, keep an eye on different kinds of coverage of, of the BRI. One of the first things that started happening, especially from European scholars、mm. who were studying China, who were interested in China's development and its impact, would say that it's just hard for us to understand what is 
BRI? What is OBOR? Mm. You know, it is so loosely defined. <laughs> and it is, um, it's nothing like, you know, people want something crystal clear, like the Marshall Plan, right? Mm. Uh, that was much more um, easy to comprehend. Okay, these are the exact like limitations and focuses. But the BRI is a concept, mm. it's a vision. And when we say initiative, it's basically, um, you know, China having bilateral conversations with host countries and they mutually decide how exactly the BRI will manifest in those countries. So it was interesting to me, I mentioned this because the very flexibility of the BRI is something that developing countries appreciate because they have been exhausted. They, they are sick of many developed countries coming in and saying, you know, this is what you need and we will tell you exactly what, what you need. You do, yeah. And that flexibility is also one of the reasons that some developed people from developed countries or who are accustomed or appreciate that brand of, you know, um, economic cooperation, they, they find it difficult to, you know, even understand they find it hard to categorize the BRI. So that's that's one misunderstanding, that it's flexibility and it's uh, receptivity, right? So you have the BRI, you have uh, GDI, GCI, GSI, you have a health corridor, there's so much technological uh, transfer. We can keep on talking about how far this concept has come, but that very flexibility is something which um, which has been misunderstood. I think that is a really good point. I've heard a way of describing it, saying mm -hmm. that the Belt and Road Initiative is kind of like water. It is with a lot of strength, but mm -hmm. it can come in any shape and form. Mm -hmm. And it actually can come in shape and form depending on the container, which mm -hmm. is basically which different for different countries, it can be different. So mm -hmm. it can help you in the form of water. It's mm -hmm. soft, it's resilient, but it's powerful. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. Yeah, right, it's a beautiful yeah. metaphor. What about you, Ji-Yuan? What have you come uh, across? I just want to add on to that because I think as you said it's loosely defined so I think that's one of also one of the problems why it has been so geopolitically focused by the West because that's an easy concept to put onto this like they always said there's a debt trap mm -hmm. aspect to it I think the popular term now is loan to own you loan somebody money and they cannot pay it back so you own them there's some sort of these weird dynamics that they say and with geopolitics put on that they can play up this sort of a China's big and it's threatening and they are using this to export their um, influences and their ideologies. But I do think that that's just one way to describe it. Mm -hmm. uh, with this kind of a international endeavor, you are bound to expand your influence. That's undisputable mm -hmm. because you are simply by the fact that you're working with others. Mm -hmm. It's about what you are working for. I mean, I don't think that there's any military aspect to it. Mm. We don't see anything about the military harbor or something like that written into any of the documents published so far. And also, let's be honest, building roads are not exactly a sexy topic politically. It's sort of, you know, it's just building roads. So I think that's one of the, one, the misconception, or I should say conjured up conceptions about the Belt and Road Initiative is that it's really about security, it's about geopolitics, it's about great power conflicts. But, yeah, you know, but it's not. But it's, it's not. I mean, even if it is, it's not necessarily, necessarily negative, negative yeah. right? Yes. I, so I, I, you always inspire me to speak out of turn. <laughs> so, but um, I have to add to that because, you know, one of the differences between um, the world of 2013 and the world today is that you do hear more perspectives from developing countries. And I can say that, you know, 
10, 20 years ago, um, the analysis of uh, global development, the dominant analysis was coming from a Eurocentric mm. perspective. And today, it's increasingly like, I would say, democratized. You know, more developing countries are expressing their views. Developing countries thought, okay, um, this is the first time in decades that one of us is playing a leadership role. China has been a developing country. We all inspired from the Bandung spirit decades ago. These developing countries did not become independent nations to be dominated by another country. And so, you know, when they see China, you know, and even if China has more influence, that influence is not seen as necessarily a bad thing at all. It's inevitable. Any country with the ability will end up having influence. And the focus, you know, so, so I think like it's, it's actually interesting that 10 years ago, that perspective that, okay, this is just, you know, China's way to, be, to dominate others. But now, 10 years on, we see more developing countries talking about, yeah, this is what we need. China at least respect, does definitely respect our agency. And yes, we've had situations where uh, there were um, projects that were not as uh, profitable uh, as we would have wanted them to be, but that's a learning curve. And the success will be determined over the decades to come. Yes. It's not like a short term. Yes, concept. that is a good point. And also, we'd like to hear someone from the, per well, not exactly from the perspective from a European mm -hmm. side, but more like, Georgia, hi, you're online. What are some misconceptions you encountered? Because I believe um, you do also have some research experience in this let's say, re in regard to this topic, and you are exposed to a lot of European ideas. So give us your take. I wanted only to add to these very uh, interesting points that have just been made. Well, uh, through my research, I've written my master's dissertation in uh, uh, well, China's engagement in the Mediterranean, and especially in Tunisia and uh, Italy, in the light also of the Belt and Road Initiative, I have come across many, many uh, prejudices and also misconceptions about the Belt and Road Initiative and also China's influence in general, especially from a European side. Um, I think that this is really important because this lack of clarity that is the Belt and Road Initiative that makes it so flexible, so adaptable, is bringing some mistrust from a European level towards the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, from a Maghreb point of view and also the MENA region, I think that it's not the same view. They don't have the same view because there's, uh, as you mentioned before, this help, China is helping other countries uh, go through this developing process uh, China went through 30 years ago. So of course they are acting as a leader, as uh, well someone who just went through the same uh, exact process in order to help countries uh, escape from extreme poverty and really help them. It is also important to say how uh, since the year 2019, the Chinese government has truly been listening to these critiques from the West and, well, putting some anti-corruption mechanisms and more clarity towards its in intentions in the future, even though it's not possible because the Belgian World Initiative is changing, is adapting, even um, adapting itself to uh, countries' uh, well needs and specific needs of their country. So it's impossible to know what uh, 10 years uh, it would look like, but I think that this is what Europe needs at the moment. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. And also, I don't know if you have come across this concept of 
China being a country, people give it a nickname as an infrastructure fanatics、hmm. because we're really good at building roads and building、hmm. ports. And actually,、uh, between the year two thousand and eight to two thousand and nineteen, China has built more than five thousand kilometers、hmm. of railway, and half of that is high-speed railway. That means. Every minute, if we just divide that by minutes, every minute one meter of railway is being growing, is slowly or steadily growing in the world, and it's built by China, and that is, in my opinion, quite impressive. So we are really good at doing that thing, and we are expanding that ability or trying to help other countries with that ability as well. So there have been and there are still a lot of infrastructure. Related to the Belt and Road Initiative, have you personally witnessed any, or have any experience related to that? Because I travel a lot within China, not necessarily to the the partner countries, but within China, I think that we do have this kind of infrastructure. I won't say fanatic, <laughs> but we do have a love for it. We've built a yeah, lot of、do. roads and、mm. tunnels,、um, and I do think that. It's. I think this is. This ties back to the misconception thing. I think because building roads and building tunnels are sort of like you don't think of it every day. I mean, once it's there, you don't. You don't think. Okay, we we ha- we now have this great condition.、Like、this road. Yeah,、you、it's like air. Don't notice it much. Yeah, but it's also the things that's most. Valuable、mm. to any kind of development、mm. because it builds up connectivity even within that region. So my point is, it's hard to mention what that gets you. Even if we are talking about education, for like if we build a road between these two regions, we might connect the school in one region to another region so that the children of these places can enjoy a good education. But how do you measure that? It's hard to measure. We cannot measure it in GDP, at least not in several years. It usually takes a very long time for those benefits to really manifest themselves. So, I think for infrastructure, it's an investment in the future. It's not necessarily something that's gonna have an impact in the near future sense. That's what I think we need to take into account when we talk、mm-hmm. about the Belt and Road Initiative. It's it, we now have we are ten years in. It's、mm-hmm. still evolving and. Maybe for the next ten years, we、we'll, we will still see many of the same things going on. We're still building roads, digging tunnels, and there might not be a a great change, but that's going to come someday, maybe in fifty years. I would say that it's like breathing air when you have it,、mm. and when you don't have it, you can't breathe. So, for example.、Um, I will give Pakistan's example because、um, back in two thousand and eight, nine, up until two thousand and fourteen, you know, we had in our biggest cities,、um, we would call it load shedding, twelve to fourteen hours without electricity,、uh, and this is the main bigger cities. I'm talking Lahore, Islamabad, Karachi, smaller villages, etc. Even less than that,、mm. we were. We desperately needed energy infrastructure to be upgraded. Transportation infrastructure the same. We had no public transport system in cities that are 20 million people, like Karachi, or almost 15 million, like Lahore. And、um, our overall, you know, highway network that was connecting the entire country. Pakistan did have in the 90s a very good investment in our、uh, motorway. Which upgraded, but we needed to further upgrade that. We didn't have the resources to.、Um, we wanted to develop the port of Gwadar for decades, and、uh, at that time we had a Singaporean company, but somehow they did not see it as a financially feasible investment. Long story short, I mean this is a country that is deindustrializing for years, and then in 2015 the first phase. Of China-Pakistan economic corridor was announced. It was predominantly energy infrastructure, railway,、uh, transport infrastructure, 
special economic zones allocated and the port of Gwadar. And I can tell you that, you know, the moment this was announced, people in Pakistan, it was a sentiment that is hard to describe unless you felt it. Like, it was just unbelievable that we've been literally begging even different um, organizations, different financial, you know, um, institutions that are responsible for infrastructure development to come in, but they saw Pakistan is too unsafe or unviable. But that CPEC investment was uh, transformative. And of course, you know, 10 years down the road, now we are energy sufficient. We have public transport in major cities, but the port of Gwadar is operational and uh, it has changed the the prerequisites for further industrialization for Pakistan. It has changed the quality of, li of life for many Pakistanis. We do have economic challenges, but CPEC has helped us um, you know, reduce the negative impact of those challenges. So I would say, you know, this was definitely my first um, exposure. Um, and even if you look at other countries, you know, like many, many African countries, you know, as one platform to FOCAC, they're also able to multilateralize that uh, uh, transportation or that infrastructure vision. And that infrastructure is playing a positive role also today. Yes, it is not economically viable. I remember Ian Bremmer, a very famous analyst. I do respect, he's very sharp. But he said, you know, even China's railway transportation, railway network is making losses right now. Hmm. As it, you cannot imagine the impact it has. It's not about the tickets people pay to sit on that line. But having that s railway network is unleashing opportunities and so much more. Yeah, totally. So that is, I mean, China's mindset is one that resonates with developing countries because they have not been able to breathe for a while. And I think that definitely it's a, it's a prerequisite to building our economy further. But yeah. what was traveling like before the roads were built? No, there before were for, roads. For 20 but million people, I mean, without public I transportation. <laughs> just like random wagons, I don't know actually how people made it work. Frustrating. People mm. get angry I and mean, unhappy, and they can't func they can't perform that work. I mean, think about the effect it has. Yeah. 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 So yes, it is. Um, yeah. Well, when you're at China's level, then of course, then it's gradual. Like you go to places like Huaping or small villages that just got there, like you know, in uh, road upgraded, and all of a sudden they're able to export their mangoes to different <laughs> cities and provinces, and they see, wow, you know, this has upgraded life for them. <laughs> I mean, when I was doing the research, I, I do have some data. Actually, I know that uh, as, the, as the end of 2022, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor has brought the direct investment of 25.4 billion U.S. dollars to Pakistan, created a total of 236,000 job opportunities, mm -hmm. and also uh, contributed to the construction of 510 kilometers of high-speed railways, mm -hmm. uh, high-speed highways, actually, and 5,000 megawatts of electricity generation capacity and an 886 kilometer national core transmission network. I mean, I have all these figures and data, but the picture you painted, mm. wow, makes me feel so uh, sensational. I mean, the feeling is, is different. That's, I think that's the power it can of only seeing be felt. it with your own eyes. And yeah. yes, it can only be felt. I'll, I'll take 30 seconds, 45 seconds more. <laughs> so, so, so in 2014, you know, I was already working and um, I think for most people I had like a good career going on. And all of a sudden I'm like, I'll go to Beijing to study 
uh, I want to understand China's geopolitical mindset. (laughs) And I knew about Belt and Road, but who knew what it would become Mm. actually, right? And 2014, people actually, some people actually thought it wasn't a popular thing to do in Pakistan, by the way. Um, we love China, but studying international relations in, in Beijing was something I hadn't come across someone doing that. And they were just a bit puzzled, but they were like, okay, she's, you know, it was confusing. But in April, when the projects were announced, everybody was like, wow, you're making the you're best. You know, it just, you know, no, it, just, it was a coincidence, but it just changed the way people saw. Wow, China has you know, this capacity, this imp, China has a growing role to play. And that, you know, it definitely, it changed people's lives. Lovely. I do not want to overlook um, this, but (laughs) but I need to talk to you, Georgia. How about you? Have you noticed any cool infrastructure constructions or even business or trade projects you'd like to mention? Yeah, it is very important to differentiate uh, developed countries and developing countries because developing countries are eager to attract Chinese investment. And I think this is something that already developed countries are overlooking. Um, I just wanted to give a very small example of something that I've been studying and going through. When I was in Tunisia, I've heard that, well, from a research, more than half of the population is willing to have China investing in their country. And I, I wanted to give the example in the light of the Belt and Road Initiative. A hospital has been built. It's a very local and small uh, example, but still, I think it's really important. The hospital of Sachs, which has more than uh, 300 beds, and this has changed people's lives, truly uh, having more employment, uh, having a hospital to go to, not to mention the building also of railways, highways, bridges, and ports, which, as said, it's truly changing people's lives in developing nations, which is something that coming from an already developed nation we don't truly understand what it is like and how it's really changing people's lives. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to a special program of Roundtable, Belt and Road Initiative in the Eyes of the Youth. I'm Neil Honglin, joined by Zhu Ahmad Khan, Research Fellow with Center for China and Globalization, Georgia Masset, Policy Officer in European and International Organizations, Huang Jiyuan, CGTN Opinion Editor. Now, the discussion continues. One thing I like to mention here is, I think this is a topic that young people pay much and much more attention to nowadays, that is green development. So do you think the Belt and Road Initiative has something to do with green development? Well, I definitely believe so. I think there is hardly any country that have get rid of this um, sort of development path, which is once you start to industrialize, there's inevitably there will be pollution. And then gradually, once you become very industrialized, you can reduce that pollution with advanced technologies and so on. And the same goes with infrastructure building. I mean, you're building roads and digging tunnels, so there will be some kind of a pollution there. And China has been doing this for decades now, so the technology is quite advanced. So if China can help these countries and export these technologies out, or at least help them to do it, we can sort of reduce the, the cost of it, um, the cost to the environment, the cost to the climate. So yeah. It's definitely helpful. Georgia, I'm going to go to you this time. Yes, it is really important, especially for 
well, the, the moment we're living in. And once a country is going through the industrial project, it's important to take into consideration green development. And I think that the Belt and Road Initiative has this responsibility to actually uh, how it is already doing, putting eco-friendly financial support, also having an international cooperation on environmental standards. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is also paying much attention, and this is something that it's truly important to me, to biodiversity, to actually protect biodiversity in, well, different countries and having a relationship with the country in order to establish eco-friendly corporations and really taking this eco-friendly cooperation at the next level, which I think it's one of the responsibilities of the Belt and Road Initiative. The reason I direct the question to you is because they've got a really good example here that is actually thousands of products, including solar panels, arrive in Madrid through China Railway Express from Yiwu in eastern China. And China produces the overwhelming majority of the world's supply of solar panels. And Sun Dredged Spain has used them to turn itself into one of the biggest solar power producers in Europe. So we're sending off batteries, we're electric batteries, and we're sending off solar panels, and also we're helping we are trying to help people in uh, across the globe to use this new energy. And I think that is a very important part. And for the initiative itself, actually in 2019, the BRI International Green Development Coalition was officially established. There is also a BRI Environmental Big Data Platform. I went on that platform and take a look. And there are a lot of different technologies. And you can actually uh, utilize some of the technology if you want. You can consult. You can collaborate with other enterprises and find it really fun yeah no no it's it's been an i think i'll also add a bit to that you know uh, a lot of developing countries are actually not big polluters mm. and they would say you know you can't think of that the environment on an empty stomach right <laughs> that's the truth um i think really when you talk about uh, 2013 14 15 like pakistan is one of the lowest polluters the african continent is also one of the lowest polluters but they are affected by climate change increasingly in 2015 and 16, the first phase of energy projects uh, was mostly not renewables in Pakistan, right? And I remember at that time, uh, many investors would say, well, invest people are only willing to invest in non-renewables. And then technology started improving, mainly because of China. 2017, Chinese scholars, Chinese scientists were actually initiating um, different conferences and, uh, you know, sessions to educate, to help uh, developing country decision makers also think about a transition, a greener transition. And that's when, you know, the initiatives, the platforms you mentioned also come up. Now, um, it's definitely because of, you know, Chinese investment in green uh, energy and technologies that that transition uh, towards greener infrastructure development is becoming possible for <laughs> developing countries. So it's definitely... Um, you know, contributing the most to the mindset shift mm. in many global South countries. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. That is a good answer. And also I've covered some pretty solid and serious grounds. So let's mm. move on to a relatively lighter and happier topic. That is, <laughs> if you get to choose, um, let's say, hop on a magical BRI initiated railway or a BRI initiated, let's call it a fantasy journey. What are some places you'd like to go? What are some hidden gems you'd like to discover? Jian? Definitely uh, for me, it's Turkey. Turkey, why? Yeah. Well, no offense to Turkey, I love Turkey. I'd love <laughs> why to go Turkey? as well, but why Turkey? Why not, why not Pakistan? <laughs> yeah, why not Pakistan? <laughs> Turkey. 
Because I think Turkey is has always been a very fascinating place.、Uh, it sits on this sort of bridge between、mm-hmm. Middle East and Europe, and I mean historically, it's been、um, there has been empire, there's been wars, there's been great culture and、uh, great relig- religious buildings.、Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of this kind of a mixture of everything、mm-hmm. in that region. So I've always wanted to visit that place.、Mm. Yeah. How about you, Georgia? Well, I would say.、Uh, Turkey as well, and in particular Istanbul, if I could choose.、Uh, actually, I was writing my dissertation on the Belt and Road Initiative、uh, in Istanbul, and when I was there, I for a couple of months, I really felt like Istanbul as a city. But not also, I could also talk about Venice, which is my home、uh, home city where I grew up in.、Mm-hmm. I think it stands, yes, at the crossroad of two continents,、uh, the crossroad of. So many different nationalities, religions,、uh, political views.、Uh, I think that as a city,、uh, also as a country, Turkey, of course, it really encompasses what the Belt and Road Initiative is, which is also the connection of people, the people-to-people exchange. And when I was there, I truly felt myself like in the spirit of the Belt and Road Initiative. I would say Venice as well. Because of my,、uh, of course, love for it, but at the same time, well, the travels of Marco Polo. Helped initiate the original Silk Road、uh, more than 700 years ago and create a relationship、uh, between Italy and、uh, China, but especially Europe and China. So I, I would say Istanbul and Venice. So what is going、For、to、me? be your?、Yeah. No, actually, I love Turkey. I have to go,、uh, but I wouldn't choose Turkey. I would say two places. Uh huh.、Um, one would be Laos. Ah. I think that we, firstly it's a new infrastructure, but I've been wanting to go to Laos for years. It's one of it's a country that has faced a lot in its history, and it's very beautiful. And the people and the culture is something that I'm intrigued by.、Mm-hmm. So I would love to. And the other would be the African continent because、uh, I just I think there's so much new infrastructure and railway networks being built. You could do a whole Africa tour on Belt and Road, <laughs> railway networks. So, yes. So yes. that's something I would love. I'd like to share my answer as well.、Yes. Mine is like I'm much more ambitious. I actually like to hop on the train, hop on the China Express Railway,、mm. and just experience the whole thing from the Chinese city to a European city. And、mm. I feel like being on the train, I'll be able to see the view. I'll be able to see how the goods were trans- are transported.、Mm. And actually, China and 52 coal-building Belt and Road countries have achieved visa-free or visa on arrival agreements、mm. with direct flights. To 45 countries along the route, making、mm-hmm. overseas travel much, much more convenient.、Excellent. And I would say traveling is definitely one thing that、mm-hmm. you want to mention when you talk about culture and when you talk about、mm-hmm. exposing yourself to different civilizations.、Mm-hmm. So the culture aspect of BRI and experience there. My experience、uh, comes mostly from my work、um, because I'm currently working with four different local teams in four different. Uh, countries、wow. uh, filming a docu series on the Belt and Road Initiative.、Mm-hmm. We take it from a kind of a human, personal kind of a view. So I, I definitely think that because this project exists and I, I get to do this and I get to communicate with people from four different countries, even if we haven't、um, met face to face. But through this kind of communication, I think I get to understand more of how they work, how、mm-hmm. they behave, and they get to understand more how. We、mm-hmm. in China works and how how we behave. I mean, of course, there are frictions sometimes. It sort of comes with, comes with the territory. <laughs>、yes. Yeah. So, but I really do think that even those small things, 
uh, helps me to understand mm. the impact of Belt and Road Initiative, aside from the stories that we're shooting. Mainly my experience with the crews, it's, it's been amazing. I think, um, first of all, you know, I think the way, I have to mention even um, your media, because the way you are covering different parts of the world is breaking stereotypes. Mm. And that is a very important service, you know, to, um, it's a game changer for many regions uh, that are developing. The coverage that you're doing on the African continent is much more about how dynamic it is, how much, you know, creativity young people from the continent have, and et cetera, et cetera. So firstly, you know, I think culture is, like people are their culture. And the Belt and Road Initiative through better media coverage, through trade, through different uh, students and professionals coming from other parts of the world to China and vice versa, they're able to, you know, have those cultural interactions that create further incentives for cooperation. So for me, I mean, I think I've just seen exponentially how much, to, to a greater extent, a Chinese youth are exposed to different cultures in different parts of the world. They're interested in, uh, you know, the holidays of another country or artifacts from another country. They're so much more well-read. And that is enabling, like it's mobilizing them to become more inquisitive and explore parts of the world that were traditionally less understood so yeah. i think that that's just happening totally. exponentially because when i was a kid i feel like when it comes to overseas movies movies from other mm. countries i would think about movies from the united states mm. from the united kingdom mm. and that's basically it i didn't i when i was a kid again i was mm. not exposed to <laughs> many right many <laughs> uh movies and tv shows and reality mm. shows from other countries yeah. but because of the belt and road initiative more and more countries started to realize we can talk to each other yeah we can collaborate under this framework under this mm. initiative and for example actually this june uh, the belt and road film week of the 25th shanghai international film festival was held mm. and filmmakers from different countries especially the countries along the belt and mm. road came together to witness the announcement of uh, of the awards and many things and that is mm. something that you didn't expect or didn't um thought that would happen it's like affirmative action <laughs> <laughs> it is i think so no it's not, i don't know if it's a bad word <laughs> i think the bri enough. is affirmative action <laughs> Yeah, like one of the first things I would think about Orientalism, you know, in the Muslim world or whatever, like we've been misunderstood for a while. And then, you know, the Belt and Road is all of a sudden creating incentives mm. for individuals to understand other parts of the world that are less understood. So, yeah, this festival is changing people's mindsets you know <laughs> and it's not only this a lot of different art galleries and um, painting contests mm. just a lot of theme about the belt mm. and road and i think it's a really great platform um, and on top of culture activities there are also education that is a very important part so georgia i was wondering have you witnessed any education related projects with the belt and road as playing a part in it I think that this is a really interesting and important question. I am uh, unluckily one of the um, generation that was too young when the Belgian Road Initiative actually started. So I couldn't really see the changes in the education uh, system for uh, for me. For uh, But I think that I am one of those young Italians 
that in light of the Belt and Road Initiative really became interested in China, in uh, Chinese language, learning Mandarin, and having this as an opportunity uh, for travel, for work, and also for education. Many universities, including uh, the, one, uh, the one that I attended, offer, uh, well, double degrees with uh, um, Chinese counterparts and also some study programs in order to improve uh, Italian education. Something that I have witnessed, for example, in Tunisia, uh, is this, well, at the very nascent phase, uh, this um, improvement in education, in cultural exchanges uh, between Tunisian students and Chinese students. Uh, so uh, Tunisian students and also, well, not North African students in general, uh, have opportunities to go to China for to continue their education with all uh, paid by the government. And I think that this is a great opportunity, a great educational opportunity uh, for them. And this exchange of cultures, it's what it puts the Belt and Road really is. The same thing I have witnessed, for example, in Senegal, that is a country when I was there uh, this April, uh, China has invested in infrastructure that has really changed people's lives. For this reason, I saw my, uh, my young uh, fellow classmates they knew how to talk Chinese, they knew how to speak Mandarin. And I think that this curiosity uh, towards Chinese language, towards Chinese culture, it's something that comes with the Belt and Road Initiative. And it's something so great uh, that allows them to travel to China to pursue their education and have, have this uh, double uh, vision and it's something that is changing our world. It's something that I truly believe in. And I would have loved to be a young student at this moment and have this opportunity to travel and to pursue my education. I'm curious. Do you speak Chinese, even if several sentences? A, a little bit. Can you introduce <laughs> yourself in Chinese? <laughs> uh, that is lovely. Georgia. I love it. <laughs> I was wondering, what about you, uh, Zoom? Do you have any experience of no. education or, you know, also learning Chinese? Yeah, it, a little bit learning Chinese, not too much. <laughs> I, I, but I would, I, I actually second completely what Georgia said just now. Um, you know, people make the comparison how many hundreds of thousands, uh, much, much more, you know, the number of students from different countries that are coming to China, different provinces and getting a higher education over here it has increased exponentially over the last years just pakistanis are almost 30000 in china currently pursuing part-time or full-time programs and um, this is a comparison that people make with the united states back in the 1950s and 60s they were offering these kinds of scholarships and then look at the kind of impact that makes it is obviously as georgia mentioned uh, more people understanding china being familiar with the Chinese language, Chinese culture, etc. But it is also that influence coming in China, right? Like there are so many these um, global villages or these, um, you know, cultural days at different Chinese universities. They represent all continents, different perspectives. So many research institutes in all across China now have people from those countries helping them do the research. And now, 10 years on after, um, you know, BRI, CPEC projects have been, you know, uh, ongoing, you have people in main major ministries who spent four to five years in China getting their education. Another aspect very important is vocational education. Mm. It's not just higher education in universities and academics, but uh, vocational education is something that China has done 
on a scale unfathomable otherwise in the world. And this is this is something that developing countries need. One of my first jobs, I was still a senior in Pakistan, was skills development program. And we were trying very hard to match the curriculum and also invest in the right because it's very expensive to give technical education to your young people mm. um, and try to match that with the growing demands of the industry. And it was not working. It requires a lot of effort. So vocational education, TVET, TVET that we call, is a big priority for many countries along Belt and Road with China. And that's where, you know, you're really making some major advancements as well. That is a really good example. And actually, we do have a system called Luban Workshop. Yes, that's yes, what that's, I'm talking about. Yes, that's <laughs> actually, it's established in 23 countries. Mm. And first established in 2016, the workshops have offered mm. degree education to more than 3,200 people and provided vocational training to more than 11,000 people according to report on this workshop's development. Mm -hmm. And a total of 49 vocational majors have been opened at the workshops, offering education for secondary vocational degree to mm -hmm. postgraduate degree. And I think it goes back to the idea of having BRI mm -hmm. working like water, because it's like it adapts to local countries' mm -hmm. needs, and it helps the country to learn about China and also helps the country to, like you said, have vocational education and also some other forms of education mm. in local areas, right? Yeah, I do believe that one of the things that I'm really interested in is to see how the BRI really improves the regional or within the country, the connectivity within the country and particularly in education. Because as we know, many of the countries participating in the BRI is not necessarily have advanced um, conditions to provide really good education for everybody. So I think the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, as I mentioned, I'm doing a story, uh, a docu-series. Uh, one of the stories is taking place in Nigeria where we found this retired head teacher there. Oh. She had been a teacher for probably three decades or so. And because of the presence of the Belt and Road Initiative, they were able to build a local school. I think it was called China-Nigeria Friendship mm -hmm. School. Mm. Uh, and she run the school for more than a decade, and now she passed the baton to her successors. And because of they have built this school so that there is a continuity there, uh, students can keep coming rather than, you know, teach a bit here and then move to other regions, teach there. So mm -hmm. students in that region can all now come to the school and study in one place, and they can come after one after another. So I think that's very crucial to provide a sense of continuity for the people on the ground in these countries. Mm -hmm. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. There's a similar example, Gwadar, the one of the best schools in Balochistan, which is a big province of Pakistan, is the Gwadar. A Fakir Friendship School. Mm. It's built by the local community and the Chinese company developing the port. So, yeah, such examples are spread all across different <laughs> projects. Yes. Very important. And I think to the stage, we can establish that the Belt and Road Initiative is not just about building roads, building infrastructures. It's more about helping local people. Building communities. People, building communities, helping mm. people all across, and also helping people, especially those relatively vulnerable groups. Mm. It's about empowerment. It's also very important to see that Belt and Road Initiative in certain occasions helped the youth to get the education they need, help women to get the job they want. And I believe you have certain experience in that realm. I can, I, you know, I think it's also about um, the perspective. When I've seen Chinese companies, and I think Georgia, like you, you would also back this, um, the, the 
commun- the company is not just, you know, doing charity for the community. They see the community as, um, you know, having potential that is untapped. And they care, you know, it, it does matter if that population, those 250,000 people in the Gwadar city, are they people that whose, you know, um, abilities are being uh, channeled in a constructive direction? Like if these are fishermen and they have these broken boats, maybe we can together be better off as, as the Chinese community based here and the locals if we are able to equip them with better resources. So in Pakistan, you have multiple examples. Just alone in Gwadar, uh, they, they have invested in better quality trainings for fishermen, provided them better boats. They have helped the local uh, manufacturers, value addition, uh, get better licenses. Um, Gwadar is green, which it never was. So agriculture initiatives and trainings for women. So women have these very important skills that are, you know, maybe handicraft, etc., or others. So, so they've built community centers to further channelize that skill and make them more economically independent. Um, in Pakistan, apart from Gwadar, you, uh, even the school, it was built because girls had a very high dropout rate. Um, and that's just one of many examples. Otherwise, we have women being financially independent now because of CBEC projects, working in offices in parts of the country where families did not feel safe sending their daughters to work. So these are the real stories that are inspiring people in a way that just thinking about a road can't. Yeah, that is very inspiring indeed. And it has been 10 amazing years and we can totally see the initiative still growing and evolving and helping more people. But I was wondering, what can we learn from the past 10 years? What are some lessons we can draw here, Georgia? Well, I think that one of the first lessons in this 10 years, almost 150 countries have signed an MOU with uh, China regarding the Milton Road Initiative. So I think that only this stands as a success and shows how it's improving day by day and how it has reached a really important stage. Also, the Belt and Road Initiative is all about flexibilities, how we say innovation, adaptability. And so I think that a very important lesson that we have to learn about it, it's how this flexibility really makes it the Belt and Road Initiative. And during these 10 years, there have been many challenges. Today, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is facing challenges from many points of view, uh, views, of course. And I think we don't have to stop at these challenges, these particular uh, challenges, but go with the flow and see where this will bring the Belt and Road Initiative in the future and learn from these challenges, learn from uh, well, all the steps uh, in the way and help help improve uh, this international cooperation uh, in order for every signing country have a better future and face extreme poverty. So I think uh, there are many lessons to be learned, but to go with the flow, be, uh, this dynamic of the Belt and Road Initiative is one of the things that in these 10 years really made it the Belt and Road Initiative. I completely agree with what Georgia said, but mm. I'll, I'll add three lessons. I think number one, think of the Belt and Road investment as part of your domestic plan have a sense you know you can't just talk about agency as developing countries and then say okay now we are just gonna you know everything's gonna happen because china has been successful so china being involved here means automatic you have to take ownership as developing countries you need to create your own container you need to make the container absolutely Mm. number two the success of the belt and road for 
any individual country is not the quantity of investment, but the extent to which it can be utilized. So now we are aligning with SDGs, we're able to, so it's not just eight, 10, 12, uh, an $8 billion investment could be much more successful than a $12 billion. Mm. Be smart. And thirdly, most important, think about the BRI as a region. That is going to have many more benefits for you as a country. So look at Central Asian countries are coming together and thinking how we can collectively have better investments. The African continent is. Every country should think about how we can work together with the region. Yes, That's about community. It's about cooperating. Yeah. Synergy. together, energy, putting the energy together. Yeah. But I have to uh, admit, there are still certain obstacles, certain challenges mm. we have to overcome. So do you pick up any challenges that you think worth mentioned, Yuan? Um, too many. Uh, <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I think it's becoming weirder is that there's a sense that because China is doing this great big project, mm -hmm. so its rivals need to have its own. I mean, I kind of, I don't get that. Because I think for Belt and Road Initiative, it's a very, I think it's a classic liberal economics. China has this comparative advantage in building roads, in building infrastructure. So people are welcoming it in. Mm. People are more receptive to it. But you know, there is the this built back better mm. presented by US President Joe Biden. And then there's this recent India to Europe, this corridor. I think there's a rush to repeating or replicating the Belt and Road Initiative, mm. which is not necessarily helpful to to the people because there's a certain amount of roads that everybody needs. I mean, if we're talking about true common development, we can maybe say, okay, I'll focus on something and you focus on other infrastructure. Instead of everybody going into the same thing and trying like out-compete one other, another. Yes. I, so. I, I will add to that. I think it's okay if 10 different developed countries want to build infrastructure. We will never have enough infrastructure. <laughs> That's my view, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think classic, like, you know, people sitting in Washington uh, would say, oh, unipolar world is stable. No, a multipolar world is um, Much better. better for developing countries, especially that are the majority. If you want to know something is better for the world, think what's better for the majority of the world, right? Ideally, they shouldn't want to compete. They should want to work together. Mm -hmm. That would be perfect. But having this just means the developing countries are more important than <laughs> they have been in a while. And that's a good thing. And that brings us to the end of today's roundtable. Special thanks to our guest, Zhu Ahmad Khan, Research Fellow with Center for China and Globalization, Georgia Massat, Policy Officer in European and International Organizations, Huang Jiyuan, CGTN Opinion Editor. Until next time, keep the conversations going and the ideas flowing. This is Niu Honglin. See you next time.